This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everyone for listening. I really appreciate the feedback as well. So thank you very much for those who've been emailing me. If you have the time, if you're not too busy, I'd also appreciate a recommendation, a rating review at iTunes. It really helps get the word out about the podcast, which, of course, is not your responsibility yet. If you would do that, I would be grateful. Thank you. And keep the emails coming. As you know, I always write back. I'm grateful for them because I love to hear about the experiences you're having. I like to understand your point of view. None of us are having the same experience on this planet, are we? So I love to hear and explore and discover the ideas of others. Now, I recognize it's hard sometimes to convey our our ideas about things, to convey our point of view. It's hard to explain what we mean, what we feel, what we're experiencing. There's a really condescending word that scholars use to describe this phenomenon, and that word is ineffable. If something defies description with words, usually, it's ineffable. You see this word a lot when you talk to people about spirituality or you read an article about spirituality or particularly personal experiences or emotional experiences. There's a bunch of literature and a bunch of articles about a phenomenon called the NDE, the near-death experience. You know, I think most of us are familiar with the NDE. It's been talked about a lot lately. Someone has a heart attack, their spirit leaves their body, they go to some place, then they come back to their body from this other realm, and they try to describe what they experienced while they were out of their body at this other place. Words do it no justice, and so the whole experience, the whole NDE is ineffable in some sense. You know, people come back from these real realms and they say, oh, I saw this being of light, or I you know, went through this long tunnel or I heard this music, but that, you know, those words don't quite convey what I experienced. There was this other dimension and, oh, the whole thing was ineffable. That kind of frustrates us here back home on planet Earth, right? We want things to be effable, which actually is the opposite of ineffable. But we, we want things to be conveyed to us, particularly when they're important and, and cool, like leaving your body and going to another realm and coming, you know, gosh, we'd sure like that to be effable. Yet, in a sense, we all know that words have limitations. We all know that it's hard to transmit via language the power of experience. You know, we know, for example, that honey, the word honey is not really honey. It's, you know, a label for something that for the you know the yellow gooey stuff that bees make and before you've had the experience of tasting honey i can use all sorts of words to describe what honey tastes like and what the experience of honey is but you'll never really understand that until you have a bite of it then the word honey takes on a whole new meaning and when we use it we know exactly what we're talking about you and i but until that time, the experience of having honey is somewhat ineffable. I mean, I can use the word honey and give you a color and say it's sweet and 
but I can't completely convey the experience to you, can can I? Not through words, anyways. But once you have honey, then boy, honey, the word honey really takes on meaning. Now, life gets a little trickier sometimes when some of us attach different experiences or slightly different shades of the same experience to the same word. And language and words can get charged emotionally depending on the experiences we're associating with them or depending on the common usage of them or overusage of them. God is that kind of word, isn't it? Or commandment is that kind of word. Righteousness, hell, heaven, legacy, heritage, worthiness. These are all highly charged words in general, but particularly in our community, right? Because, first of all, they're overused. We use them way too much. And since we use them way too much, we're all associating slightly different emotionally charged experiences to them. Let's take the word heritage, for example. There's a woman in my ward. She joined the church 20 years ago, grew up in the South, has spent her adult years in the Northeast, a woman of very humble origins. Well, when she first joined the church 20 years ago, there was this big pioneer obsession kind of circulating through the church at the time. And she had an experience in primary, her first calling in the church, where the primary presidency was constantly lording over everyone, their pioneer heritage and their ability to trace their roots back to the early pioneers, the founders of the church. And the emotional vibe that this woman picked up on was that these people, these leaders, these women, were trying to distinguish themselves as a little more elite than everyone else, a little more entitled. Now, I have no idea if that's what they were really doing. Who knows? But she started associating this emotionally charged experience of being left out, of being an outsider, of being a less than. She started associating all those emotions with heritage and with pioneer, those words. And when she hears things like the stake planning a trek for the youth, which glorifies this pioneer period, you know, the great migration west, oh, you know, or, you know, looking to our forefathers, you know, all this kind of language we toss around in the church, it, it reminds her of these experiences, of feeling less than and inferior in her first church calling. So when people start talking about heritage and pioneering, she has a very different experience. When we talk about honey, you know, we've all tasted honey, and so we all know what we're talking about. You can imagine theoretically, though, that if someone, instead of being given honey, was given a glass of gasoline to drink or, or a rotten, moldy piece of mango to eat, and told that that was honey, well, there'd be a little bit of a disconnect when you start talking about honey. You'd get an odd reaction from that person when you'd offer them a little herbal tea with honey on the side, wouldn't you? So words are tricky. They get emotionally charged. And the more abstract the word is, the wider the variance there can be on the emotional range associated with that word by any particular individual. And part of being a mature adult a compassionate adult is to not assume 
that everyone uses words or that everyone has emotionally charged the words the same way you have, particularly as the words you're using or the words you're hearing are less and less concrete and more and more abstract. So while I'm sympathetic with the woman in my ward, the, the convert of 20 years, who's had an unpleasant experience with the word pioneering or heritage, it's better for her, it's more mature, it's more compassionate for her to not assume that people are using the words the way that she's emotionally charged them. Because the sad fact is, when someone talks about heritage or a pioneer to this woman, it's not their fault she's emotionally charged those words the way that she has. So it'd be kinder and more compassionate and more mature for her to step back and think about what people are really trying to say. Now, this is a hard thing to do for us as human beings because, frankly, we're illogical. We're, may, we're way more emotional. We use heuristics. We're sensory-driven, perception-driven, and we're not really that logical as logical as we think we are. I mean, we're more logical than, you know, chimps, I guess, or dogs or ants. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we're logical. We're primarily emotional and intuitive. We all have egos that are constantly working in the background, our mind, if you will, making sense of things. And the ego's looking for threats. And then we're feeling the emotions that we initially associated with any particular word. And, you know, it, it's easy to get out of hand pretty quickly and come away from a conversation feeling offended or manipulated or insulted. And it's good for our sanity to be able to not assume that people are using words in ways that are triggering us. Now, a lot of us want people to just use different words. We want other people to understand where we're coming from and to just not say certain things. And I guess that makes sense, and that's okay at the extreme, right? I mean, you know, you can't yell fire in a movie theater. You'll create chaos. So, you know, there are situations where, you know, people really do need to change the words they use or not use them at all. We have all sorts of funny substitutes for those type of words. We have the N-word. We have the F-word. Just to give you a couple examples, can't use those words in polite company, and for good reason. But that's the extreme. I mean, in general, you can't go around telling people to, to speak differently. If you, you know, to, to try to control what everyone's saying all the time and to take offense at every little thing. You'll drive yourself insane. It's not mature. It's not compassionate. You gotta own the way you've emotionally charged words and not assume everyone else understands that and is using words intentionally in ways that bug you. People who do that are difficult. But for some reason, people just don't want to own their reactions, the emotional charges they put on everything. It's more fun for them or it's more dramatic or there's more excitement in blaming other people for their emotional reactions for the emotional charges they put on words and making other people change how they treat us then there are other people in fact who not only won't be open-minded and compassionate towards others and how they use language and how they hear language but they will in fact proactively Amp up the drama 
intentionally use words in ways that they know are provocative. And then they'll hear words in a way that they know will cause drama. And then they just love the drama. They love the excitement of it all. They love to give offense and they love to take offense in subtle ways, of course, because they're playing with all the underlying emotion that's charged into particular words. And then when they hear things, they take things out of context or they twist it a little bit or they, you know, they just love to be offended because then that gives them something to talk about, some drama. And people like that are really difficult indeed. There are two people I'm thinking of in particular. I'm going to call them the witch and the warlock. Because they use language in such a way, it's as if they're casting spells. They understand all the underlying emotions that most people attach to language. But then they also are so savvy with particular individuals that they know how those people in particular have emotionally charged words. The witch that I'm thinking of is especially creative, almost like a savant, when it comes to her own children and how she uses language with them. These children are all grown up, by the way, this particular woman I'm thinking of. But she still exercises this supernatural-like control over them through her use of language and words and how she reacts to things that they say, sowing doubt when she wants to, Flattering when she wants to, controlling, manipulating. She's like an evil genius. And if any of her children get emotional about it, well, that's just a new chapter in this ongoing drama that she's addicted to. And she doesn't even know it. Her children have confronted her about this. They've demanded she go to therapy. They've done family therapy. I mean, they've done it all trying to figure this out. No one can resolve it. Because for her, it's all subconscious. She doesn't even recognize it it's ego driven i've heard some of her own children defend this woman saying oh well she's got a good heart her intentions are good and i just shake my head and i say she's psychotic of course that's how i emotionally react she's not actually psychotic but she is unawakened she's living in this bizarre dream and she's not even aware of what she's doing while she's doing all this she thinks she's doing it for the greater good she has this fantasy that she's, in fact, sacrificing herself, her needs. The warlock that I'm thinking of, he's a genius at using language to divide and conquer. He wants everyone to be his best friend and to have no other friends. And so he'll say subtle things about other people that you might be friends with. He'll sow seeds of doubt about the loyalty or the intentions of others. He'll try to introduce into your mind the way he's emotionally charged words so that you'll start to hear and see things differently again he's addicted to the drama of life it's addicted to the action the adrenaline whatever it is that drives him and like the witch he's completely unaware that he's doing it thinks his intentions are pure clean righteous positive and we all know people like this don't we we work with them. We live with them. We go to church with them. Life gets hard when we feel beholden to these sort of people or when they're in positions to control our lives, at least in the short term, then life gets really hard. And the temptation to strike back is always looming in the background. Omnipresent, the temptation to, instead of turning the other cheek, to return fire with fire. 
to effectively say to these people, you need to change, you need to do things differently, you need to use different words, all the things you're doing are triggering me, you need to, once you change, you know, you, 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 that's the temptation here. That's the delusion that we have in our mind. That if we can somehow change this other person the way they use language, then we'll be happier, we'll be better off. But all of us, at the end of the day, have the same choice to make about the words other people use as this woman in my ward does. You remember her, the woman who was triggered by talk of pioneering and heritage by the elitist members of the primary presidency. We can all be sympathetic to her, to her plight. We can all understand her frustration. But the sad fact is, she's the one who's got to grow up. She's the one who's got to be mature. She's the one who's got to be compassionate because she's the only one she can control. And maybe that's why we even encounter difficult people to begin with. It's one of the ways that we grow. Because difficult people shine a spotlight on the way we think, on the way we cope, on the way we react. They stretch us and challenge us and demand a higher frequency from us. Because if we don't produce that higher frequency, we can never get out of their clutches. Well, that's a hard lesson to swallow. No one wants that lesson. But we see that lesson Taught through parable and story over and over and over in our scriptures, don't we? The story of Alma the Elder illustrates this. Alma the Elder got away from the psychotic King Noah. And the guy was a psychotic. And he burned a prophet alive. You remember that story, don't you? Noah, not the guy with the ark, but the son of Zenith, who left the people of Nephi, went out into the wilderness to start a new colony. Zenith dies, and Noah becomes the new king. And Noah is crazy, a glutton, wine-bibber, indulgent, self-destructive. And Abinadi comes to him and preaches at him, and he grabs Abinadi, puts shackles on him, and burns him alive. I don't know about you, but that counts as psychotic in my book. And Alma splits. He wanted to get away from this nut job. So he gathered up a few like-minded people, and they headed out to the wilderness. They set up their own little... Encampment away from Noah, start growing their own crops. Everything seems to be going along fine until this guy Amulon shows up. And Amulon is a psychotic too. Amulon used to be one of Noah's right-hand men. He remembers Alma from the old days, from the colony. And the manipulation and deception begins. Amulon tells Alma, look, you just show me the way out of here, back to the place we came from. We're a little lost here in the wilderness, so... Show us the way home and we'll leave. So Alma does that. And Amulon says, just kidding. I think I'll stay for a while. You think, how can he get away with this? Well, he's backed up by an army of the Lamanites. And he effectively turns Alma's camp into a work camp full of indentured servants. And here's the best part about the story. Alma and all of his compatriots there start praying for a little salvation from this miserable experience. That sounds familiar to me. You're in a bind. You're stuck with tough people. You feel trapped. There's no solution. You start praying. You know, God, gee, it sure would be great if you'd just get me out of here. This really blows. Sure would love a reprieve here. Thanks. Amen. So Alma did that. 
You know, they all got down on their knees, held up their arms. Hey, you know, we'd sure love to get away from this Amulon guy. He's crazy. And his army is scary. And, you know, it's no fun being a slave. How, how about a break? You know, a miracle or two would be nice if you could just get me out of here. Thanks. Amen. And God, like he always does, heard Alma's prayers the way he hears our prayers. And he's nice about it. You know, gee, I get it. You're, it's tough. No fun. But, well, you know, there's something about being in that position that might be helpful to you. It might change the frequency of your thinking. It might elevate your thought processes a little bit. Maybe force you to develop a new skill, some new coping methods. Force you to maybe grow up a little bit, become more mature. So, no, I think I'll leave you there for a while. Don't worry. I still love you. Well, that's not the answer anybody wants to prayers. And that's not the answer that Alma wanted. Sometimes we want the answers that we want so badly that we don't even hear these other answers. We don't even hear the other inspiration that comes in the form of comfort or encouragement. Or, look, it's it's a good place for you to be. Hang in there. We just want other people to start using different words. We want the situation that we're in to change because the whole thing is really triggering us. And being triggered is unpleasant. And, you know, if God's not going to help us out of this, well, maybe there's no God at all. What are we doing all this praying for? Sometimes we toy with short-term atheism. This praying, this is crap. You know, for the people of Alma, if there's ever a time for God to show up and save them, you'd think it'd be when this nut Amulon and his army of Lamanites are looming over them. But God sometimes wants us to change ourselves. He wants us to stop griping about all the words other people are using that trigger us, all the terrible things other people are doing to us, and he wants us to change. Because it'll be good for us. It'll make us happier. It'll make us stronger. We'll be better in the end. That's how the powers beyond this earth typically work. You know, and as we come to terms with that fact, I think it is a fact. I think God's okay when in the process we revise our understanding of God. If we wake up one day and we realize God is not just some bearded man handing out Christmas gifts all day long, but is something bigger, deeper, more profound, harder to understand than that. Because, you know, we didn't really come into life just to be extricated. We came to learn, to grow, to change, to evolve. So more often than not, the situations that we're in are to that end. The end of changing the frequency of our thinking. Changing the way that we react to others. Increasing our ability to endure. Because that's what creates strength and freedom and independence at the end of the day. So that's what God does to Alma. And he's, and his people, he says, you know, just... You know, hang in there for a while. I'll, I'll be back to you later. It's kind of the Mr. Miyagi approach to teaching. You just keep waxing this car. Wax on, wax off. I'll be back later. Well, and this is hard because now we're left dealing with the nut jobs, the psychotics in our life who abuse us with their wizard-like magical use of horrible words and manipulations, and we're stuck. And then we pray to God, and he just says, oh, just keep waxing the car. Goodbye. That's a bit of a bummer. 
you know, sometimes in these situations we think, how am I going to get through this? I'm not going to get through this at all. I guess I'm just stuck. But great miracles can happen when you feel like you're just stuck. Because when you're just stuck, you start weeding out a lot of things from your head, a lot of expectations, a lot of unfulfilled ambitions, a lot of desires, a lot of hopes. You start giving up on things, letting go of things that you just can never see happening. And your mind starts to think of all sorts of reasons why, well, that's okay to not have this or give up on that or no, don't do this thing and, well, I'll never be that. I guess I'm not going to ever be this or that or have this position or that thing or I'm just stuck like Elma working in the fields, getting slapped in the head by some whack job. And in our Western society, in our specific LDS community, this is seen as a great tragedy somehow. We're giving up on our dreams. We're taught you can achieve anything, do anything. Don't ever give up. Just persist. You know, so these situations where you're forced to just let go of things, to abandon things, ambitions, dreams, hopes, this is seen as a great tragedy. My parents had an experience like this. My mother was an ambitious LDS woman. She had determined at an early age that she was going to have 12 children. She was going to be the greatest mother of all time. She got married, proceeded on that path, started cranking out children, about one every 18 months or so. A little more than halfway there at seven children, moving on to her eighth. And the eighth was born with Down syndrome. My younger brother, well, that brought... Her plans to a screeching halt and completely changed the trajectory of everyone's lives. And at first, this hit my parents like a ton of bricks. They were in their mid-30s. They had seven children already. And then the eighth came with special needs, would require a massive amount of attention, medical attention, emotional attention, training, And this younger brother dominated all of our lives for the next, you know, 30 years. We all suddenly had a new role to play, caring for him, teaching him, watching over him. And the lessons associated with his birth started early. There was a guy in my parents' ward at the time, right after my younger brother was born, condescending, self-righteous guy, went up to my father shortly after my younger brother was born And said to my father, who was grieving, struggling with this. And this guy said to him, well, this will maybe make you take church a little more seriously, won't it? There's some emotionally charged language. Indeed, I was a little kid when this was uttered, so I don't remember this specific episode personally. But the fact that this story lives on in family lore makes me believe that my father did not react well to that comment. And you can easily say, well, that guy's a jerk. Boy, what an idiot. He should have said different things. And yeah, that's all true. But the lessons that my father learned from my younger brother changed him as an individual. My father was the great caretaker of my brother, as was my mother. And he shaped and changed them as he shaped and changed all of us. The notion that my brother was sent into all of our lives to teach us compassion was introduced into our minds by the stake patriarch when he gave my younger brother his patriarchal blessing. My younger brother, in spite of his handicap, got a patriarchal blessing. 
And the state patriarch said that my brother's presence had taught and given his siblings and parents a capacity for compassion that they otherwise would not have had. You know, that we were changed. This patriarch and the blessing he gave introduced that idea into our family culture. And with a little bit of hindsight, we began to appreciate more the role our younger brother had played. You know, the idea that our younger brother was a great blessing, a a great teacher, well, that was miraculous. Not necessarily fun, not necessarily what we wanted. I'm sure all the prayers prior to his birth were that, that he'd be a healthy, bouncing baby like the rest of us. I'm sure there were many times when my parents just wanted to be extricated from it all because it was hard. And there's no real way at this stage to convey the experience to someone else. The whole experience is ineffable. We can try to convey it, but it's experience. My parents and my family are the product And each of us are going to have our own set of experiences. And it's hard to convey it. It's hard to transfer it with mere words. Because words get emotionally charged. They get twisted out of context. They are sources of manipulation, confusion sometimes. But after you've had some shared experiences, then the words really seem to make sense for everybody. Words like honey make a lot of sense when everybody's tried the honey. It's nice to go to church on Sunday and hear people express experiences that are so similar to your own. It doesn't take many words to understand those experiences, does it? Now, sometimes people are getting up and talking about things they have no idea what they're talking about. And words get out of hand then become tools for showboating or impressing or cross-talking. But that all goes away as life And the powers that be chip away at all the things that are unnecessary about us. Like a sculptor chipping away the unnecessary pieces of stone to reveal the true image underneath. Once that happens, then just a few words suffice. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. If not, please do email me and tell me how it can be better. You can find me at Mormon Awakenings at Gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.